Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We need you to help us keep the mics on and the important conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. We have no ads, we have no sponsors. We rely totally on you. So please click on the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's your way of carving out a little bit of space so we can continue to do the work and feature stories and topics that don't get as much coverage in the mainstream. It's the easiest bit of activism you can do. I would also say thanks to everybody for the feedback we've been getting over the last few weeks. It's been fantastic. Particularly lots of you loved the live shows in the Sugar Club and there will be news in that space coming soon. Finally, I want to give everybody a little bit of a warning. This podcast you're about to listen to contains subject matter that some people may find disturbing. Please don't let that put you off. Please give it a listen. I think it's one of the most important conversations we've ever done. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and Martin, we are back speaking about something pretty serious, but you know what's pretty serious now? Go. The fact that those headphones are getting bigger, you're shrinking away. I left know, it oh, I know, I know. We, we, we had our pal on yesterday from Portugal and he had lost 20 kilos and I've lost 20 kilos. So we both look kind of svelte, but he looks healthier in the sun, I have to say. Can we, can we, can we give Joe, um, so... Long-time listeners will know we often get to speak to uh, the vice deputy leader of the Socialist Party, who are the party of government in Portugal. I don't know how we end up being friends with him anyway, but he speaks, he talks to us every few weeks and he was giving us the lowdown. But the funniest part was, and this is this is a bit of body shaming, himself and Martin said, oh, Tony, you're the only one who knows to shift the weight now. So yeah, got, that's true. That's I got, true. I got a bit of a kicking. Um, look, uh, enough fat, enough tomfoolery. We are delighted to be joined on the podcast by a range of, of powerful women who are going to talk to us about the crisis in our CAMS uh, services. And uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you to Jenny, Emer, Anne and Hannah for joining us. Uh, you will have probably heard some of these voices across the media over the last couple of weeks, but we thought it'd be nice to bring people together for a panel to have a discussion about what it actually means. And, and the worst problem about this, and I'm going to caveat this, so apologies, ladies. Ireland needs to move to a point where people need to stop telling their stories to get action, but we're not quite there yet. So we we'll, So we will continue to flag this. So, Hannah, if I could go to you first, if you could explain um, why why you started the campaign and what sort of what the Families for Reform are calling for, first of all. Hi, Tony. Thanks so much for having us on. Uh, yeah, I suppose Families for Reform CAMS as a group of 270 family members and young people who've been through CAMS or who are currently going through CAMS. Um, and we're very much calling for the urgent reform of CAMS and um, asking government to take urgent action on this. Um, you might have been aware there was the recent uh, report from the Mental Health Commission um, outlining, I suppose, that they can't guarantee safe services are being provided to children across the country in the area of mental health. Um, and this has very much been the experience of our family members. Um, but it's not the first report. There have been reports produced periodically and action hasn't been taken. So we've come together um, I suppose to create a unified voice and um, so that we're not tackling this alone to really pull pressure on government to take action now. Um, so I suppose we only set up the group about two and a half months ago. So we're quite a new group. Um, myself, um, my daughter started uh, suffering from anxiety about two years ago. Um, wasn't too serious to begin with, but over the course of being on the wait list for CAMS, things deteriorated quite rapidly. 
Um, and I suppose that that was my introduction to the service, that when you really need help, there isn't help to be had. Um, and you don't realise that there is no service until you go looking for the service. Mm. Um, so I was quite traumatised by our experience, to be honest. Um, I took part in the parent workshops, uh, which informed the Mental Health, Mental Health Commission's report. Um, and that was really eye-opening for me. I didn't know whether our experience had just been a kind of one-off, particularly bad one. Um, but what I discovered was it's it's really the norm. It seems to be the more common experience and that families out there are waiting for support. And then once you even get onto the books of CAMS after probably uh, repeated refusals or long waiting times, the support isn't even there when you get into CAMS. Like they're completely overstretched. There isn't the staff there to provide the supports needed for our children. Um, so I think we we just really want to highlight this issue at the moment and mm. we don't want I suppose the flurry of media attention over the last week or two to die down and for us to be forgotten again. And I think that's really crucial here because I know I spoke to someone from the Scoliosis Network um, this week and we were discussing the fact that they were talking about now sending people on waiting lists abroad for for surgeries but we've had nothing but every every 12 months if it, it flares up again you know we've, we've, we've had different ministers say I pledge that it won't take more than six months to get this operation. Then the next guy comes in and says, we're going to take 12 months. And, you know, they, and they've moved the goalposts ra- and rather than actually achieve it. And, and we don't we don't get what actually, we don't get to see behind what needs to be done. So Hannah, one, one, one more question on you is, is the big issue around, obviously the report has come out, it has a lot of good recommendations, I, I'd say. Are you you're looking for them to be fully implemented? But I'm going to use a word that might come up a bit today, in a transparent way, because we're not quite sure about a lot of it at the moment, are we? Yeah, so I suppose even when the report came out in the last week or two, we haven't had any kind of strong response from government. We don't know whether government are accepting those recommendations or whether they're committing to take them on board. So at the moment, uh, we're very much in agreement with the 49 recommendations set out in the report. Um, but we really need that assurance from government now that they're going to take it seriously. Um, I think the only response we've really heard from uh, Minister for Mental Health, Mary Butler, is around um, the current considerations to reduce the number of CAMS teams from 75 down to 50 or 55. Um, I suppose the rationale being given is it will centralise resources. Our group are not in favour of this. We see it as a reshuffling of resources. We don't see it as tackling the actual issues. It feels like a kind of distraction method in some ways. Um, and we are really keen to meet with Mary Butler to discuss plans and kind of even just get some information. Maybe there's some really good reasons why they should do that, but we aren't aware of it and there hasn't been that communication and there hasn't been that transparency to date. And we've heard this before. We've heard about centralising services and we've seen where it hasn't worked before. And I think the the the, the health services now going back to health boards is probably the prime example of centralising services that hasn't worked. If I may, can I come to you, Emer? Emer, what was your experience of using CAMS? Uh, thanks. Yeah, so our experience, I suppose, uh, my son has ADHD. He's 12 now. And um, I suppose from an early age, it was evident that he was a very bright kid, which is, is great in itself. Um, but when he kind of began preschool and kind of went through Montessori and all of that, um, we kind of started getting reports of him not concentrating, of him, you know, socially disengaging, behavioural issues started to come into it. Um, which was very much kind of very much based around the school setting. So when he was about four, 
Um, we went for an assessment through the early intervention team on advice from our GP. Uh, met with a really lovely psychologist at the time who confirmed, and um, you know, he is a very high IQ, academically very strong, queried ADHD, but said he's a bit young at four to, to you know, diagnose it, but keep an eye on it. So he started school the following September, which means September 16, and the struggles escalated. And even though we had, you know, inputs from OT through the early intervention team, which was super, you know, the, the struggles in school continued. So in, I suppose, 2019, he was about to go into second class. The wheels had really started to come off. Um, so we approached, I suppose, the early intervention team. We went privately to get a psychologist's um, assessment done who confirmed the ADHD diagnosis. And we were kind of told we'd be long, were waiting a while for CAMS to pick it up because he'd been privately diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So we went then and we were fortunate enough to source a private psychologist in Dublin. We live in the West. Um, and he recommended we would try medication, which naturally as a parent, you're always kind of, it's not necessarily where you want to go, but he really felt that it would be a big a big benefit for our son. So we did that and uh, the benefits immediately were so evident. He, you know, he, you could see that the child was now going to start to fulfil his potential. He could concentrate, he could participate in extracurricular activities but before this he just he just hadn't the ability to focus or stay you know with a group or whatever um so then unfortunately he retired in November 2020 so we're obviously in covid at this stage um so his his care at that point was transferred under cams and so we then had our first meeting with cams in March 21 which was over zoom again in the middle of the height of the the 21 lockdown and the appointment was substandard to be very polite about it um, on every level. And they changed his medication without giving us any proper explanation as to why they were changing it, what the new drug would do, how it differed from the drug he was on and, and well established on for about 18 months at that point in time and was doing well. Um, so that was changed. And like neither my husband or I were not medically trained. So you trust the doctors that you're seeing know what they're at. Um, Was there a change in his behaviour then afterwards? So literally the following, like within a couple of weeks, he went from being a fairly happy-go-lucky little boy. Like, I mean, like every child during lockdown, things were were not normal, but he became very, um, he regressed beyond recognition. He became depressed. He was suicidal at the age of 10. It was horrendous to the point that I was glad he wasn't actually in school, that I could watch him because he was really not a happy child. Um, and over the course, I'd say of about a four to five month period, this situation got worse. Um, I contacted CAM several times, um, tried on several occasions to meet with the, the consultant psychiatrist because you're seeing, you know, trainee psychologist, yes. psychiatrist, which is fine. But you'd like to think that there was an overseeing person there. Never managed to even have a conversation by phone with the, the psychiatrist who was over his care. How long, how long was that going on? We're talking from February to probably May. And in the end, in desperate, like we had during that time, we had follow up appointments with the same trainee psychiatrist that we had met with, um, changing dosages, changing medication and asking us, what did we think? And you're there going, I'm not a medically trained person. You're the doctor. You know, what? what's your advice? What's your recommendation? So to say we were disillusioned um, as parents is an understatement. Um, but what was worse was looking at the damage that was being done to our son, his self-esteem, his self-worth. 
his mental health suffered horrendously during that time. Um, so in desperation, I like I rang, I'm very fortunate to have a very good GP and a really good pharmacist. Um, and even some of the scripts coming from CAMS incorrectly written, um, you know, that only that I had somebody on the ball in the pharmacy seeing what was coming in, he probably would have gotten an incorrect drug or dosage of the drug, which could have had all sorts of other effects. Um, so we, in the end, I in desperation, one day I rang CAMS and I said, I'm not coming off the phone until I get to speak to somebody. Um, I want right. to put back on the medication he came into you on because he was stable. My think, well, thinking was, let's get him back to where he was and yes. see, can we rebuild him? Um, so we, the drugs were eventually changed and we, we got it settled and whatever. But since that, so we're talking now since the summer of 2021, two years on, he's still going for counselling. He's still going through therapies. We're still trying to build his confidence and his self of self-worth and repair the horrific damage that was done to him in that period of time. Um, like we both work. Um, so it's putting a huge financial strain on us as a family, stra- strain in terms of even, you know, we've other children. It's it's all of that. It, it impacts the family and nobody seems to see that. Um, we got so desperate that we actually reached out to psychiatrists privately in the UK yes. and we did manage to meet with one really lovely person over there. But the upshot of it was, while she could provide us with support and recommendations, she cannot medicate because there's no cross-border prescriptions. So even if you can afford to pay or to travel, which, you know, we were we were prepared to make that investment, um, a lot of families don't have that luxury, but you can't actually go anywhere because if you get a script, it's of no value when you take it back to Ireland. And has um, has he changed medication, Emer? Is he has he gone back to the original medications? So yeah, so there's I'm not sure how much you know about medication for ADHD, but there's two main forms. There's kind of quick release and longer release. Yeah. So he was initially put on the quick release um, of a particular drug that suited him. He was changed to a long release of a totally dr- different drug, completely different release profile. Um, and that was the drug that CAMS trialed. In the end, I said, can we not put him back to what he was on to be told that there was a long release version of the drug that had suited my child to begin with. So to hear that four months later was just, I mean, as a parent, you're fit to just scream. It's the frustration of it. Instead of you know, when I asked the question, I said, why wasn't the child just put onto the long release of the drug he was established on and nobody could give me an answer? You know, so it's that kind of and, and, and sorry, just to add to that, in the in the interim of all of this, there was a change in the doctor we were even seeing. So the continuity care was completely absent. The child himself, every time you go to an appointment, and I know it's not just our son, it's every child is the same. There's a change in CAM staff twice a year. Yeah. Um, so you go into one appointment, you'll never see the same psychiatrist more than if you see the same person twice, you're doing well, but you'll never see them a third time. And every appointment you go into, your child's case has been discussed with your child sitting there. So you're dealing with a child that already has low self-esteem, is potentially quite depressed or is, you know, low mood. And you're hearing and it's all negative stuff in these files. There's nothing positive. There's never any note of the child is great at X, Y or Z. It's all the kind of negative medical stuff. And I just think, you know, that has to change. You know, the continuity care, children sitting there at an appointment with their parents when they're being discussed. I just think it's appalling. Um, So so that's continued to be the case. I've written written down continuity of care and you've gotten to it. It's just just staggering. Like we were talking yesterday evening to Patrick Bresnahan and I hope he doesn't mind me saying, but his son um, was diagnosed with leukemia quite young. 
And uh, yesterday, it was yesterday, he had to go to Tala Hospital to have a, a cast removed and he felt like a celebrity, Martin, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, they want you, um, yeah. Yeah. But, 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 you know, so it's, but the words that you've used that strikes me is you keep saying unfortunate, you know, uh, shouldn't need to be fortunate, should we? We should just give up. No, and I mean, these kids, like, you know, by, by their nature and if the more I've learned about, I mean, our first experience with ADHD as a family was our son and I have learned so much and read so much and, you know, kind of we've done courses through ADHD Ireland, which have been very useful and beneficial, but there's nothing like that for our son. He thinks he's alone. He doesn't see that there's probably two other kids in his class of 30 that have ADHD. Yeah. He just feels different. He feels I'm a weirdo. I'm strange. I don't have that many friends. It impacts every aspect of this child's life. And these kids, you know, by nature, people with ADHD tend to be the people who are willing to take a chance, to take a risk. They're creative. They're the inventors of the future. And we're letting them down every step of the way from their from their young kids right through into adulthood. Peter, and that's it's, the problem. It's, it's awful to think that between the ages of four and ten, I mean, so young, mm. so utterly young. And that's the that's the period where you can actually make impactful changes with children and you really yeah. can. I'm going to move on to Anne. Anne, would you mind telling us your experience of CAMS? Hi, thanks for the awareness to, or the opportunity to spread awareness, I should say. Um, my son is now 12 and um, I suppose our story would have started when he was quite young. I noticed um, differences and some sensory struggles that he had. I went to early intervention who, similar, they're not cans, but just to cover, they initially said, um, he was only three and a half, four at the time. So it was a case of he's presenting with anxiety, but we don't know, could he be on the autism spectrum or is it just anxiety? And then that psychologist left and we went to on another list and came back and she signed him off to say he's doing good. There's no further need for intervention. So then when he went to school and we were of the belief this is just a bit of anxiety, and when he was seven, um, the poor creator, his world just started falling apart. He couldn't cope and he was feeling suicidal. He was having suicidal ideations for what his little brain was capable of. He just wanted everything to stop. He wanted all the stress and anxiety, the emotions that he didn't understand because he was only seven to stop. And can I ask, because it, 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 it it's really struck me. How do you, as a parent, first know that your child is at, at suicidal, and then how, how do you manage? How do you cope uh, with at seven? How do you? The language isn't there. I mean, a seven-year-old doesn't have the language to to understand the complexity of the situation, and as a parent trying to deal with that, how I, I just don't know how you cope. Man. Well, it's a sink or swim situation, through. Every day, mainly, you know, you have to try your best for your child because you want them to have a better future. And to hear a seven year old come out with the comments is was heartbreaking and traumatizing as well. And two younger siblings at the time where you're trying to shelter them mm -hmm. to not be exposed to this, um, this context of words. But, you know, it 
it was quite relative to the, you know, he was trying to get you, he'd say, please, you've took me into this world, take me out, put us, you know, I, I, I don't want to go into it in case it would upset That's you. okay, yeah, that's okay. But, you know, the different implements he'd be asking you to use and him and that. So we um, went and got a private diagnosis. Um, so he's autistic and with a general anxiety disorder also. And it was a recommend. Now we had to go private. So it was a recommendation to link in with CAMS. And over the next number of weeks, his mental health was deteriorating and he was becoming just extremely stressed all the time. Now, as was in one sense, we are lucky we did get accepted into the CAMS um, service relatively quickly. And one of the first, you know, in the first meeting, it was a case of, do you want medication? We were completely taken aback. It's our first child. It's our first time dealing with anything like this. I didn't want to medicate him. So I I was kind of shook and I said, no, um, you know, that's the last chance. So we tried uh, different things. Then a couple of months later, his, his mental health was suffering more so. So we had tried different options and knew at that stage we were going to have to try the medication. So we started the medication and there was slight improvement. Then as this COVID hit and the psychiatrist left, we were 18 months on Risperidone with no supervision, no blood tests, no ECG, no checkups. He was never seen in person. Um, the um, only- of what age? So that was um, up until, my apologies, now, about nine, nine and a half. Nine, a year and a half at nine. That's so um, we're 23. Sorry, now I'm trying to. You're all right. No, 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 okay, go um, on and tell us. At so the end of okay. last year, the behaviour was, was not, was his mental health was not in a good place. He was getting, he was still, you know, he'd gone back in the depression and the suicidal ideations and just overall struggling anxiety was so peaked and I was on to um so this was about like October twenty one actually um all this was happening. So I said to um I got onto cans to request that they change the medication. And it took a couple of weeks to get onto somebody and you, you like Unfortunately, you have to become an absolute pest. You have to harass cans all the time for phone calls. And I never had a point of contact. I was just ringing the receptionist every day and you're just getting the same blase, uh, uh, you know, answer. Oh, yeah, somebody will contact you and say, well, I was told that three days ago and still nobody has contacted me. I was told that last week and still nobody has contacted me. You just have to be harassing them. And when you have, like, we both work, you have other children Life is busy and you're trying to help your child and then to have to be calling CAMS repeatedly is an additional stress in your day. So eventually we got in with the psychiatrist who agreed, uh, did the tests and agreed to change his medication. Um, after a week on this new medication, we moved from Risperidone on to Fluxtine, which is the Prozac. So then she left, she went sick and then she left and we were left with in limbo. There was nobody um, taking up his care. So I was ringing again and had to say, you know, how, what is the weanage dosage? 
Like, can can somebody just ring me back? Tell me the figures that we need to be aware of or just some advice on to how to continuously wean. And nobody was coming back to me. Nobody was ringing. So then I had to take it upon myself to go to the local clinic and sit in the office and tell them that I wasn't leaving until somebody spoke to me. Good woman. I was there for about two hours and I eventually got to see one of the psychiatrists. And, you know, after the conversation, she said, look, I can understand why you're here. And I said, I shouldn't have to be here. That, you know, I said, I I understand if I was in your situation, I'd have to do the same. And then I said, all I want is the dosage information. I'm not asking you for anything else. Just give me this. So we got that and we still had no continuity of care. So I was managing this and I have no medical expertise or background and I'm just managing this weaning process myself at home. And then as it continued on, it it was, you know, it's hard to believe that it was our reality at the time that he's he was he was really struggling. Suicidal ideations were increasing, attempts were increasing. The only advice is lock lock up all your knives and um put them behind a locked press, which isn't very practical no. in a home. And um they always was repeated. If you have any concerns for your child's safety, this is their go-to. If you have any concerns for your child's safety, then present yourself at A&E if you're really concerned. And that's the last thing you want to do with the small child. So June of 22, um, unfortunately, we were at that stage. Uh, Every half an hour, he was decreasing. And it's such a difficult thing to see your child struggle so much. They're so young. They shouldn't have these worries. And I rang the can. It was my third phone call of the day to say, I really need somebody to talk to urgently. And um, the receptionist rang me back and said that basically at the fr- they, it was a Thursday. We can give you a, an emergency appointment on Friday. And I said, I need to talk to somebody today. Um, no. And then the whole A&E conversation, I said, OK, well, look, we're going to A&E. I'm in Cork. There's two um hospitals in the city. I said, which one do I go to? The Mercy or CUH? They said, go to the Mercy. So the receptionist knew that we were going to be presenting to the A&E. We arrived at the A&E between about 3, 3.30 p.m. And the staff at the Mercy A&E were fantastic. But this wasn't their remit. So he didn't have physical injuries for them to treat and the process, unfortunately, was that they would wait for a can psychiatrist to ring them at three different times in the day. Somebody would check in and if they had somebody in AE for cans to see, they'd come and see them. So nobody rang this particular day and they didn't have a phone number to ring. If they had a couple of numbers saved, like they had a mobile phone in the AE, and the nurse manager came and spoke to us and showed me the phone where they had tried to attempt to ring numbers that had rang them in the past. So we presented between three and a half, three thirty. About six o'clock, they got somebody to answer a phone, and they were told, "I'm not on call, but I'll pass the details on to whoever is on call." And nobody rang back, and there was no other phone answered for the rest of the evening. And it was about eleven, eleven thirty. They came in and said, look, no one's coming at this stage. You have two options. You stay for the night and wait for somebody to ring in the morning or go home and come back in the morning and wait for somebody to ring. My poor child was so distraught. 
home had to be. It was a very traumatizing experience for him. And, you know, that particular day was one of the few times he was asking for help. He was he was willing to go to the professionals and get help. And we presented to the hospital and nobody came to see him. So we left and I again presented myself the next day to Cannes and told them that again, I'm not leaving until I get to see somebody. So we did. And this person, the psychiatrist, just sat there and listened. And I was saying, you know, there wasn't even, it was like talking to a woman. There was no real response. There was no interaction. There's no advice as to how to help my child. It's a case of we'll just leave the medication settle and go home now, lock up all the knives and keep an eye on them. How is he now? We had we pulled out of school. Uh, right. He was in fifth class and didn't attend from October. His whole environment was stressed. He was in a very bad place. And thankfully, now we are using private therapy. We're lucky to be able to afford that and to work with him and try and help him understand his neurodivergence self, build his confidence, very low self-esteem. But I now have a query of ADHD and I had brought this up. It was a psychiatrist had mentioned some, I was speaking about a behaviour at one stage and she said to me, well, that kind of sounds like ADHD. Has he ever been assessed? And I said, no. And ever since then, it played in my mind. Pam's kind of raised a red flag and have ignored it since. And now I have been on to them to assess for ADHD and we're about seven months into you know, oh, filling out questionnaires, there's just, still nothing actually just, has happened. Just um, and first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. That was just, that's powerful. But I want to, I do want to make some blunt points. And I told Hannah I'm pretty blunt when it comes to these things. Like even it's like a very simple thing. Last year, when the government announced their their funding for mental health overall, the budget of seventy two million, it was a shortfall of what mental health reform had asked for. They'd called for an additional spending of of a hundred million. They wanted the additional on new uh, new requirements. There's clearly a need. In this, what the report that we referenced at the beginning was called one of the most damning ones ever received in the modern in the modern history of this state. Uh, we talk of 140 lost cases. We talk of a lack of continuity care, and over and over, you guys use the word of "fortunate" to be able to go private, lucky to be able to go private, lucky to be able to have a good GP, fortunate to have. It's just, it's just sticking in my throat a lot here. When when you know. Uh, we will have campaigns every then we'll say you know the usual stuff it's okay not to be okay <laughs> and, um, uh, 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 th- these things are very heartbreaking but but thank you for sharing that and the, and yeah, the, thanks, uh, yeah. it's 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 really important that that people understand young people have been abandoned and again one last blunt point martin unfortunately i have to i have to raise it is the whole idea of what you know is really topical in in the housing um debate at the moment where children who are experiencing emergency accommodation and, you know, now finally people are starting to acknowledge that there's potentially uh, adverse childhood experiences that will affect children going through that uh, homelessness in the long term of their lives. There's no doubt in my mind that we're talking to people here, unfortunately, who who, who know they're raising children who are the system has actually, I hate to be so blunt, but the system has actually uh, forced you into what, what the child will, will hopefully not under, not come out at the other end with an adverse childhood experience, but it's certainly fucking not, not, a, not, a, not, a, not a helpful way to do it. Go ahead, Go ahead Anne. Just to, as was raised, that we are all here because our children are struggling and our children will become adults 
with no intervention, their mental health will be in a worse situation as adults. The adult services are as bad, if not worse. So if, if they don't give intervention and they don't help the children when they're children, there are so many more years of trauma that they have to work through as an adult. And it, it, it's, it's just so frustrating that the government make these false promises and say, you know, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, but they don't. And it's us that are still struggling with our children. And when they talk about, oh, reducing the numbers, as I agree with Anson, this is just a smoke <laughs> and doors, you know, situation. They're, they're trying to distract from the problems. They reorganize something and it's us that's at home with our struggling children day after day while they're implementing their new organization. There's nobody getting services. There's nobody getting help in this time frame. It's just admin moving offices, basically, is what I think. Thanks, Anne. Emer, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, just two points, I suppose, to add to what Anne is saying. I mean, all of us, obviously, who are here today talking with you, we're, we have that ability to do that. There's a lot of children who are in the same situation as our children, who maybe their own parents are suffering with mental health issues, who maybe financially cannot afford their barely you know, surviving so they can barely get their keep their heads above water themselves. So there's nobody advocating for their children. Like, I'm not sure about the other parents on here today, but I've had battles with school, with everything from the day he went into the system. And only exactly as Anne said, only that I am shouting the loudest am I getting listened to. And even at that, I'm only getting a bit of lip service a lot of the time. And the other thing I would add to, particularly, I know Anna said it there in relation to her experience and, and her child's mental health going forward. ADHD has been proven to be one of the most treatable mental health disorders. It falls under the Mental Health Act. It is a neurodivergent condition. And, it and if it has been proven, it has been proven time and time again that if children get the appropriate care and it's not just medication, we're talking intervention therapies before they reach the age of puberty, it can stop them going down the route of, you know, serious self-harm, risk taking, trying drugs too young, drinking too young, getting behind the wheels of a car before they're old enough to drive, because those are all behaviours that people with ADHD can demonstrate. And it's it can if it's treated and their their skills and their talents can be harnessed in a positive way and add to society rather than becoming a burden on society in the long term. Like the statistics for adults who have failed in education, who have failed to hold down employment, who have had failed relationships, marriages, it, the list goes on and on. The statistics speak for themselves. We need to help these children today, not in years I, to come. I, I know, and Jenny, we'll come to you now, but I want to make one little thing. Was quite, it's just a little... Um, experience, personal experience of a friend of mine who whose child has um, is an autistic child, but but educated through the public system in the UK, and the true resources fought tooth and nail. Uh, and the point was made that that his son should be running companies, not uh, not struggling with these things. Um, and I'll give you one. I want to just one little uppy thing. Uh, he now plays bass in, in the dad's in the dad's guitar in the dad's band, and is basically um, uh, he's putting them all to shame now because uh, they 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 go to the, they go to the local bar and they play and they keep going. Your bassist is very good, but the rest of you really need to quit it, folks. You know, um, Jenny, I'm, I'm going to come to you, and I'm sorry, Jenny. Somebody had to be last. No, that's okay. I'm sorry that you were last, Jenny. Will you let us know what what was what is your experience of camps? Yeah, so um, 
I my daughter is ten, um, and she was treated for a very aggressive brain tumor when she was a baby, and because of that and all the treatment, she was left with a lot of damage. And she's diagnosed with autism, um, ADHD, and an intellectual disability, amongst other things. And um, as is very common with that, in the last few years, her mental health has really deteriorated. Um, and actually, she's pounding around in the background. If you can hear it, so I apologize, but. She um, has severe anxiety and she was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder, which comes with that, in that even the things that she enjoys, she will put up a battle to do. Um, And she, you know, she isn't sleeping. Like she's up now since 2 a.m. last night and she'll go through the day and that's very common. We're waking up at 2, 3 a.m. most days. She's hurting herself. She's headbutting surfaces. She's attacking her little brother. She's attacking us. Um, so she's in a lot of distress. And last year we were referred into CAMS. Um, we're in Leitrim, so it's Saigo, Leitrim, West Cavan. And we were put on the urgent list there. Um, and I was told that the urgent list was 12 months um, to get in. Um, so I got a telephone assessment. Sorry, can you hear her in the background? Know, you're okay. You're working. Can you film? She, she's, she's, she's adding to, the, to, the, to it. <laughs> she's uh, really illustrating the point. But um, yeah, so we were referred in last September um, and I started calling, you know, to follow up and see where we were on the waiting list. Like someone was saying, I just kept getting through to the secretary that said someone will get back to you. Never did. I'd call again, having to be that pest. And then I eventually got a telephone assessment earlier in the year. Um, and I knew on the assessment that they were leading down the road of refusing the referral um, based on Maggie's diagnosis. Um, and I I think it's an overused term, but there was a lot of gaslighting um, yeah. that this wasn't a mental health issue. This just comes under the band of an autism diagnosis um, and really that I should go back to our local disability team. Now, I have a great disability team in the area, but they don't have a psychiatrist. And for someone like my daughter with such complex needs and so many diagnoses, she does need a psychiatrist to, to diagnose and treat her. So um, with the help of the disability team, we pushed it and we got a sit down meeting last month with CAMS, um, who uh, totally agree that there are major issues to be solved with my daughter. But Basically, what happened was my daughter was discharged before she was even taken under their care because of the fact she has an intellectual disability. And now if children have an intellectual disability, they won't be seen by CAMS. And last year, last September... Sorry, Jenny, is there a reason for that? Well, and and I see the point, there should be a specialised service. So last September, the HSE launched that special service, an intellectual disability CAMS. Um, throughout the country and there's 16 different regions I, I, I might may be wrong on this but I can't find anyone to prove me wrong there's four set up so there's 12 regions with no intellectual disability mental health services so like us you will be discharged from CAMS they won't take you into their treatment and you're not put on a waiting list for anywhere else um, because the service is not set up the funding is there but because of recruitment issues and I don't know maybe a lack of will the services are not set up and there's no other alternative for our children. So I have a daughter who is in the thick of a mental health crisis and like good luck finding someone private because psychiatrists have been picking up the sack for the HSC for so long. A lot of them have closed their books and um, there's a lot of them retiring like 
there's a crisis with retention and recruitment of psychiatrists anyway. So there is a crisis looming if we're not already in it, that there's just not enough psychiatrists to deal with the amount of children and adults that are suffering in the country. So yeah, we we have nowhere. Um, and I have swallowed a lot. I mean, I've been patient. I know that everyone is overwhelmed and I've, I've waited on the lists and I don't complain, but I cannot wait eight years for my daughter to deteriorate further. Um, sorry. It's been true enough, Jenny. I mean, she got yeah. through as a child. God almighty. She got through two years of chemo to just be left. Ah, to just, you know, you yeah. would think to just at the end of it. Through that. Yeah. You know? survives better or you know that she deserves better than this all these children deserve better well, they all they all deserve um, better than this yeah um, and we all do and like that I like with the kind of thing of you're kind of looking at it going is it this bad should I just accept to go home and not do anything and then you have a bad day and you go yeah it is that bad it is that bad and it's like going into the doctor with a pain and them telling you, well, we don't have any treatment, but just go home and stay really still and then you won't hurt. <laughs> so we are coming home and we are walking on eggshells the whole time just to keep life calm for our daughter. But we're just surviving and it's relentless, relentless and no help. I know. You're left on your own, Jenny. I, 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 I am struck the the bravery of, of and I know, your partners are all working with you as well. I know that you're not flying solo. All of you have said that there's other help there for you as well. But it has to have an extreme effect on your relationships as well. And it must have an extreme effect. I mean, it's not only the children that need help. You need help. And it's very clear to me that all of you yeah. need help. All of you need real help. I don't and know I'd add to that, Martin, there's siblings in, in houses as well. Mm. There's other children. Like we have two other children and the impact it has on them cannot be taken out of it either because there is need for, and I know let's fix the initial problem, but I think it's a bigger piece. There needs to be family therapy. There needs to be, yes, you know, supports for siblings to realise, okay, my sister or brother, they're not doing this, that, that they have an understanding because again, their children. Schools need to play a part in this as well. Schools have a huge part. I mean, I'm doing all about the other parents on here. Every September I go in and I sit down and it's a lottery. Who's the teacher he has this year? What will it be like? How will the year be? Well, I, it looks like you it's going to be worse this year because I was talking this morning to uh, a couple of school principals and they can't fill vacancies, particularly in SETs where they need yeah. uh, vacancies in SETs, vacancies in SNAs and all of these situations whereby, and this is in, I want to remind listeners again, I'm sorry to be the, the guy, the bean counter, but this is in apparently the second wealthiest country in the world this, now with budget surpluses that we can what, beat the band. This is what I wanted to ask you. And, and sorry, Jenny, three, go ahead. Sorry, if I could just ask this, and, and Jenny can answer first. We heard this week that the, the Taoiseach said that he wants Ireland to be a country for children. And we know that we have the biggest budget surplus that we've ever seen. But does it feel like a budget surplus to you when really what it is, is the service isn't being fulfilled, funded, uh, staffed, that there there really is nothing at the other side of that door for you? How, how does that make you feel? Jenny, I just, come to you first. Yeah, I just cannot believe that the HSC has such a huge budget, like 22 billion, and they're still going to be over by a billion or two at the end of the year. 
and that the thing is such a mess. They are hemorrhaging money somewhere. I mean, I, I can't actually say it's a lack of funding, although mental health services, I think they get like 5% of that budget and people are calling it, for minimum, it needs to be 10 or 12%. But I think it's bad management. There's something, the money is going somewhere and we only hear about these large amounts of money after it's been wasted, after like some scandal comes out and then we know, oh, there was money there. But how is it such a mess? I, I really don't know. And that lack of transparency, I don't know who to blame. Everyone I've met in the services has been so good to us and so wants to push things forward. But who is stopping us? I, I don't know. So there is a lack of transparency as to who the book stops with. And and I know well that the person who's making a mess out of this, whoever they are, is getting paid really well to do it. <laughs> and, and yet it's coming down to us who are on things like carer's allowance or trying to do part-time jobs as parents out here spending our time trying to push it forward. It's a joke. Man. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. It's unbelievable that top managers sitting at a desk are getting extremely well paid and the people that are on the ground trying to help parents don't have the staff, don't have the support, don't have the services or facilities to actually help enough people that need the help. And just to also point, we tried to go privately and we were refused because of my son's age and his diagnosis. So we have no other option. Thankfully, we're in a position where we could try and get the money and go for private psychiatry therapy, but it was refused to us. So we have no option but to deal with cannabis. Amor. How do you feel about the situation? I mean, a country awash with money. Uh, a Taoiseach who says he wants it to be the best country in the world for be a child. children. How do you feel about the situation being in the reality of it? I think they need to get the basics right. I mean, it's, you know, appointments, the length of time people are being made to wait. Then when you get to see it, the manner in which appointments are dealt with, you know, as I said, a child sitting there listening to this, there should be meetings with parents. The end of the day we're trying to protect our children as best we can there needs to be appropriate follow-up appropriate other intervention it's not just you know I suppose in our experience it's the medication is all that they offer us um but we need more than that he needs more than that um like the whole system is broken and I completely agree somebody's getting very well paid somewhere um but they're not doing the job and I think there's an awful lot of fat and the HSC needs to be taken out it's there's no question in my mind that that's there, and I actually think it's it's from the top down. It needs to, it needs a complete shake up. Um, psychiatry has always been the underfunded piece of medicine in Ireland, and even in terms of attracting talent into that profession, has become increasingly difficult. And of course, it is. It's a very difficult area to work in. Um, you know, it's not the kind of up and coming area anyone, young doctor or nurse, wants to probably go into, but. They really need to make it a more attractive career to go into and to stay in and that proper care is given and proper services are provided. Hannah, we've heard these stories. I mean, I, I know Tony's gobsmacked. I'm gobsmacked. And I really do feel, Jenny. I, I don't know if I'm, really I don't, do. I don't know if I'm gobsmacked, Martin. It's, 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 I'm not shocked. I'm, I'm just shocked that how alone. I, and and Emer, yeah, uh, that's 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 what's shocking me most. That you, it's basically you're on your own. We're parents. We're both parents here as well. Myself and Martin and and 
and um, we've all got our own stories. Like when when you were mentioning chemo earlier, Martin, you had many many rounds of chemo. Which you have about oh, two years. Of it. Yeah. So so we we know some you know there's life experience as well, but it's just when you're hearing those things and and being said like that. But first of all, I just want to thank you all before we wrap. Um, this is really 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 powerful stuff and anybody who's listening who's not impacted <laughs> I could sit right off to Amazon and see if you can get a new heart or something you know uh, Martin sorry hey, uh, yeah, Hannah what can we do uh, us as people what can we do how can we support you both just rally around us I think as you say we do feel so alone um, we have been fighting on our own and I think to have that support from people beyond our immediate families would mean so much to us um, we have a petition online. We have so we are, our website is familyforreforms.com. There is a link on that to our petition, and we'd really, really appreciate people getting behind that. We're going to use that to bring it to government, and you know, try and keep pushing for reform. Um, you know, we we are kind of in some ways at a dead dead end individually. Like a lot of our members have gone through the complaints process and gotten nowhere, and you run out of fight at a certain point. Um, and just concentrate on your child. But this is us giving it another go and really seeing where we can get to with this. Um, and all of us here today have young children as well. So we're all with CAMS for the next foreseeable future. So, you know, I have great fear if we go into another crisis phase, what that will entail. And people say you got through it once, you can get through it again. That's not guaranteed. So like for me, keeping pushing is is all we can do at the moment. Um, and our children really deserve that. Um, thanks very much. Jenny and Amor, you are so brilliant. And you're brilliant parents. And thank you so much. I know how difficult it was to come on and share. And I know how difficult it was. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. Can I make one suggestion if, uh, if uh, Minister Butler does listen? Uh, whenever you do sit down to talk about what's happening, the, the recommendations in that report, that you pull up a chair for the organisations uh, that like like the, the families that are calling for reform. You need to pull up another chair and make sure that their their voices are at the table because uh, it's really really crucial. Thanks everybody for listening. And um, look, we're very busy here, as you know. We will have senior lecturer in applied psychology, our friend Sharon Lambert, Doctor Sharon Lambert from UCC on in the feed as well. So she's due to join us later on this afternoon. It'll be out in a few days, folks. We'll talk to you all very very soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.